Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show. I am Louise Solace, your host on the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. And with me, as always, is my dance partner. She knows when I say it's just a jump to the left. The next one, it's just a step to the right. She knows a tuck her knees in tight. <laughs> Hi, Louise. All right, so it's just a little bit of a time warp. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you get it? Obviously. Were you there with me? I'm there with you. Did you go right to the Rocky Horror with yes, me? Yes, 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 yes. So I totally going to start throwing it. rice at us or something? <laughs> exactly. I did, yes. Avi. <laughs> yes. Um, so um, all of this is to lead up to the fact that I think we're just going to take a little bit of a, you know, a step back in time with today's guest. And uh, maybe we can leave all the silly references to this cult classic behind. I don't know, maybe jump into how some literary geniuses have really inspired him to write these amazing cocktail books. But I've got one more. I can't let go. I can't let this go. Um, so why don't we just invite him to come up to our lab? Okay. To see what's on the slab. <laughs> how are we? All right, invite him in so we can, so we can get to how you came to okay, this. Okay, we'll stop all this malarkey now um, and invite our next designated drinker to the show, writer and cocktail historian, Philip Green. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. Hi, Phil. No more malarkey. <laughs> Wait, I want to know about the intro. Why the intro for Phil? Why, why, why Rocky Horror? Because we got into like the time warp. It was like the fact that back, all of the almost hundred years to Paris. Yes. Oh, and so, like, so we're gonna stop. We're gonna stop somewhere in like the late eighties. <laughs> damn it, Janet! Come on, can we just yeah, exactly, move forward here? Exactly, damn it, Janet! Stop being an asshole, oh, Brad. I didn't say that. <laughs> No, yeah. it was All a right. time warp. We're going back in time. I actually did start off with H.G. Wells, but that was so serious, and somehow or another I got the time I warp. It. I don't know, don't ask the creative. It. How it happens, I have no idea. I love H.G. Wells, <laughs> we're good. All right. So, da -da -da, Philip Green is here. Yes, so he's a writer and cocktail historian. That's pretty cool. It's uh, something if you told me, well, I, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know this cocktail historian thing was in my future. 20 years ago, but uh, you were born into it. I was born into it. Tell I, us why. I, I had no idea when I when I used to live in New Orleans. I went to law school at Loyola University back in the 80s. No idea that my great great grandmother's cousin, my cousin, was <laughs> was the creator of Peixot's bitters. And, That's and, pretty cool. And according to folklore, the inventor of the cocktail, the inventor of the Sazerac. Yep. So I researched the guy so thoroughly. I I found out no, he he was born in 1803, the same year the cocktail first appeared in print. So he wasn't the inventor of the cocktail, but he did invent Peixot's bitters probably in the 1850s. So it's like, did Columbus, you know, discover America? No, yeah. but he had a lot to do with Westward But it was in 1492 that exactly. he sailed the ocean blue. Sailed the ocean blue exactly. <laughs> so um, maybe Columbus was the PR of the Americas. Well, and somebody else, and you went. PR is nothing but spin, says the person from advertising. <laughs> so, sort of establishing myself as an authority on Peixot and the the. the New Orleans cocktails. I fell in with an amazing crowd: Dale DeGroff, Jill DeGroff, Ted Hay, Robert Hess, uh, Jared Brown, Anastasia Miller, Chris and Laura McMillan, and we nothing found, but a little name dropping there. We established the Museum of the American <laughs> Cocktail 13 awesome. years ago, and and uh, it's just been it's been a great party ever since. Just oh but, those are some great people to hang out. They with. are, and um, but I, I I was a history major and I like to write, so it was and I like to eat and drink. And I, in New Orleans, you sort of are infused with that that knowledge of the folklore and and the history of, of 
Antoine's, Arno's, Galatoire's, Commander's Palace. Absolutely. You know, there's so many dishes and drinks that you learn the folklore and the, and the history of, and it, it just becomes second nature. So nice. to be able to work in this area as a quote-unquote historian and, and to write about it has been just a thrill. So. I always think it's really amazing when people find those those pat, those. Uh, pathways to their passions and especially when you like your history your family history lead you into this other space that you had no idea yeah, was out could there. Could have easily not ha have happened. Yeah. I, I just decided I want to research my family tree because I miss New Orleans so much and you know you, you don't you don't know who's lurking in your in your in your ancestry and then you find somebody who's like wow you know he didn't invent motor oil or something he invented <laughs> the cocktail well he didn't but yeah, it's it's pretty pretty well, fun. Well, element to, that's really crucial to, that's, to many cocktails, yes. right? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm speaking. Most, to, I'm speaking to like. It's one of those. Well, First of all, I want to say this: one, you're, if you're a listener that doesn't need a drinker show, you definitely know that we've had Jared Brown on and Dale DeGroff, and now we're sitting yes. here. I mean, I Philip Green, and Philip Green at the time was the treasurer, right? Yes. Right. right. Eight years. Eight years, the treasurer. Like never for, indicted. Yeah. <laughs> well. You know, no that could be yet, right? Like... I mean, in true New Orleans he's got to look a little bit, and the muck comes up from the from the river. Um, I'm just kidding. Phil is the most delicious, amazing human being. Um, but I want to say, like, it's it's incredible to like have this kind of like uh, now to our show longevity of in, in, of yeah. people that have founded things. But you know. It's, it's, I feel like everyone's peace and time is is where it's supposed to be. Your story started with finding something out about your your great great cousin, and then it led you to your path. And then we're here to talk about um, Phil's new book, but Phil yeah. has two other books under his belt. And can you elaborate on those books, Absolutely. please? Well, sure. Um, so I became sort of a New Orleans cocktail geek historian. And just built out from there, and you know, I started doing seminars on the cocktails of Hollywood or the great hotels, and you know, every year I would do something at Tales. Um, but all along, I've been a Hemingway buff since uh, since high school, and I kept reading articles. This was Hemingway's favorite bar. This was Hemingway's favorite uh, drink. And sometimes that they were close to the truth. Sometimes they weren't anywhere near the truth. Imagine that. And I, I decided I'm going to take my cocktail knowledge and my Hemingway knowledge, and I'm going to write the definitive book on the drinks of Ernest Hemingway. And cool. fortunately, I found a, an agent in 2010 who believed in the idea. And we sold the idea to actually, we pitched the idea to a bunch of publishers and three different, we got three different offers, but Penguin was the best. And so I wrote that in 2011. 2012, we published um, To Have and Have Another, instead, you know, play off of To Have and Have Not, mm -hmm. a Hemingway Cocktail Companion. So that I'm very proud of. It came out in second edition three years ago. And then two years ago, I published um, sort of the definitive, it's called The Manhattan, the story of the, the first modern cocktail. The Manhattan was, was the first modern cocktail. It was from 1800 roughly to 1875, the cocktail was more or less the old-fashioned. It was spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. And when vermouth started coming in from Italy uh, in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, bartenders at first didn't know what to do with it, if they even knew it existed, because it was probably in the little Italys of, of, of each major city. But finally, it, it started to become um, something to be embraced, and, and a bartender, bartenders started making vermouth cocktails. And then somebody had the idea of adding 
adding whiskey to it, and thus was launched the Manhattan. So wow. it, it sort of jump charged the jump started the uh, the bartending industry in in the 1880s because everybody was like vermouth. Where have you been all my life? It became like the killer app of of um, of, of um, ingredients. And so I'm gonna take a leap and say that was mostly all in New York. Then is this where this is happening? Well, it's, it was. It probably started in New York. Yeah, um, New York was a huge bartending scene. But there's there are theories that it was created in, in New Orleans. There's a theory that it was created in Bladensburg, Maryland, of all things. Which, yeah. Which was a spoof. What? But that no, was a spoof. Oh. Um, fake news. <laughs> um, no, but it, probably in New York. But but it rippled out. You know, we're yeah. by train. By train. Yeah. So we made to Chicago. The century, it made it to different places by um, railway. Like, so it was a oh, fast way to travel at the time, and drinks were made. It was very so civilized. Say, weren't, they, weren't they making cocktails on the train? Of course, train it was a very civilized way to travel. Yes. Yeah. Yes, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, so you just had adding, adding vermouth to the cocktail just started all this innovation where you had all these drinks, probably the martini, the Martinez, the Rob Roy, you know. Let's try vermouth with this, and you, you you know you get the Palmetto or the Plimpton, which is a rum uh, Manhattan from the 1890s. Wow! Um, and then you're adding aperitif bitters, and you, you're you're you know you're launching things like the Americano, Negroni, Boulevardier, Old Pal family of, of drinks, and you know the Vucare in New Orleans or the or the La Louisiane. So many drinks uh, were you know were had vermouth in them where you wouldn't have seen them 20, 30, 40 years before. It just it just opened up this whole new flavor profile of aromatic blended cocktails. So that was that book. And then, again, going back to my love of Hemingway and The Lost Generation, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Dos Passos, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, Pablo Picasso, Salvador Dali, I could go on for the rest of the segment. So many amazing people yeah. lived in Paris in the 1920s. If you've seen the movie Midnight in Paris, mm. you know you understand Woody Allen's love for the era. Uh, this is sort of a bartender's guide. It's called a drinkable feast, uh, a cocktail companion to 1920s Paris. What were they drinking? Where were they drinking? The excerpts from literature, the anecdotes, the newspaper stories, the vintage photographs and, and postcards. And, and I don't know if I got to that. How to avoid one, maybe. But because uh, a lot of the drinks of Paris were very low alcohol, you know, oh. maybe a fortified wine with seltzer, or a pear teeth bitter with seltzer, or something like that. So. Um, if you were going to spend the whole afternoon and evening sitting on a cafe terrace, yes. you know, the sidewalk, maybe you want something like a session beer. It's a marathon, not a exactly, sprint. Exactly. Yeah, a marathon, exactly. not a sprint, right? So you had the American bars there. You had the American cocktails and the, and the gin drinks from, from Britain. But you also had the, the, what the Parisians would like to drink, which were a lot lower proof. So you, you had this great you know, pollination, cross-pollination of different styles. Uh, in the different places, the cafes and, the, and of course the wines and the champagnes, you know, you'd find up in uh, up in Montmartre. Oh, uh, now what is that? So what do you have there, Gina? It's a Jimenez Rouge. So it was reinvented again, Good. right? They redid the recipe and everything, and they did it with um, uh, Lynn House, which is a good friend of ours from Chicago. And uh, you talk about you know the sessionable cocktail. And you say what? What do you drink? What do you do? What do you do? So one thing to do is you know you drink a little bit of sorry, a little bit of vermouth, right? And you'd mix it. You do red, something's very dry, a little lemon, something like that would be really nice. Um, any citrus or anything like that, and you drink it on a patio. But what we do in this country, like what we are accustomed to, is that you drink this before the meal. 
So let's have a little, let's get Louise a little bit palatable to what we both know as like the vermouth cocktail. And we will give it to her. I'm gonna use- um, A really tough job. Really I'm gonna tough use job. A, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna use, so I'm gonna use the Fino, for, um, the Fino, which is super, super, super dry. So we are going to actually not use a lemon, we're gonna use a lime skin. So I'll just do it really simple. And you guys, and you can taste it because to understand what he's talking about is to understand in a complete era, writing, time, um, the sex of the time, everything. It's, I would say a, this is like the romantic part of it, it all. It was an amazing time period. You had Man Ray, you had a million people that were doing things that were completely avant garde and like how they did it. So, you know what? Yes, maybe they drank things that were 17 proof all day long. <laughs> so if you think about drinking a few beers at, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, 5% proof, and then you have five, maybe they had 10 of these at 17, and then they write like what we call, uh, our, you know, inspiration or the best novel ever, right? So or, or maybe. Inspired the surrealists so that, yeah, exactly. But surrealism. See that? Data. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking about what inspired everything. I think she should have written the book. <laughs> it's it's my favorite. It's like it's what to me becomes becomes the the beauty of it, becomes the the inspiration. Well, it's very pretty. Don't don't mix it. Just drink it like that. Okay. You don't need to stir it. You don't need to do anything. Sometimes just let it be and like it'll settle because of viscosity oh. of that. One will rise above the other and it'll finish sweet and start dry. Leave your vermouth drink. You want to stir something, stir stir your finger with some gin. <laughs> Just leave that alone. Thank like the Italians will leave it alone. I wanted my lime to drop in. I don't know why. Um, I, I should just personally like, just follow your lead all so the time. So citrus, I'm just going to say that. Citrus with, with vermouths are personal. You can go anywhere around Italy. You may have a lime, you may have an orange, you may have a lemon. You may have a Parmelo, you may have whatever it is, but it is a personal preference. For me, I like love Dubonnet and limes, even though Lynn and I got into a huge argument about what it should be, whether it should be the lemon or this, and I still think the lime is, a, is prevalent, and it's my drink, and I'm the bartender, so. Yeah, well. damn it. Buh. Okay, it's your show. show. Now do you understand? <laughs> now you can no, just drink that all day, right? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's yeah, balanced, it's easy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, what sorry. do you think, Phil? Can you drink it all no, day? No, it's delicious, and I'm, I'm happy to hear Dubonnet has sort of been reborn. Because it was, it, it's, I mean, it's one of those products that, you know, some of them have been forgotten or the recipes changed or, you know, we went through New Coke back in the middle 80s. But, <laughs> you know, Gordon's Gin isn't what it used to be, and Kina Lele is now Lele Blanc, and you can get into an argument over that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's great to see classic brands trying to return to their roots. So. Nice. Yeah, okay. the, the, what I do know of um, vermouth, I was in Barcelona last spring, and I learned to drink vermouth with just club soda and a slice of and a, a orange rind. Like, yeah. it was so great. Get coke with it. No, we're sitting over the Mediterranean, uh, way up on this mountain at this amazing restaurant, eating paella and drinking. Uh, they brought the vermouth and they brought the big bottle of charged water, and you just drink it as you as yeah. you will, and how you want to. You know, and it was, it was, it did not suck. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Salvador Dali used to love to drink vermouth with, with olives in the bottom yeah. of the glass. And in Hemingway's short story, My Old Man, they, he talked about the, the horse racing jockeys and they would drink vermouth and seltzer be, be, 
because they could just sit there and you know be on and when they were in training you couldn't drink a lot because you had yeah. to keep your weight and all that and that was a nice way to have a few drinks without being impaired or so are, you, are you telling me I should just drink vermouth with seltzer and I'll be fine is that what you're telling me it's, Phil because I like this little story I'm gonna buy what you're selling right now no, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I keep my weight down so, and so wait, wait you have to give her give her the reference of why so vermouth has different characteristics like where it's well, from what it is right well there's so much flavor there but it's, yeah. it's relatively relatively low proof I mean it's it's just a fortified aromatized wine so you start with relatively inexpensive wine. You add brandy to it to, to raise the proof oh. to what, like 18%? Maybe. Not, not very high. Most and then 15, you, you add barks and roots and botanicals. And so it's a flavored, it's a flavored wine that's a little bit stronger than Ooh. your average wine. But it's going to keep a little bit longer, and it's going to have a lot more mixing capabilities because of the flavor profile. So, you, so, you, so this is a dry vermouth, right? We agree. It's a bone dry vermouth. Add to this. Add to this uh, an olive makes yeah. sense. Add to this gin, yeah, it makes sense, right? This wasn't, you know, they just they knew what they had. This is salty. It's already salty. This salinity yes, in this product. Yep. So you, where you were, it was only indigenous to what you did, and then people brought it together. And I will say, I wish I was in New York at that time period because what a time to live in, or what a place to live in in Paris. And like all these products from around the world are coming instead of like a spice trade route where you're like learning about cinnamon and star anise, you're learning about different uh, vermouths from Italy, apertis from Amaro. Paris, Amaro. Yeah. Um, bitters, yeah. all the bitters that were on the market back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, aperitivos, I mean, forget Fina. it. Yes, I mean, we have a beautiful, I brought a, we have one of those here. So do you, um, for those who are just starting down the vermouth route, you, am I wrong that you should, you should always refrigerate your vermouths to keep them if you're not going to drink. I would. I mean, do you do you have like so when I don't finish a bottle of wine, Gina, I usually use my vacuum and remove the air. Is that as important for a vermouth? Either that or decant it. You know, maybe put it. You can buy um, little 375 milliliter bottles. If if you don't think you'll use it anytime soon, you can decant it into a smaller bottle. Um, but yeah, refrigerating does add some shelf life. I've never done the vacuum in or the inert gas or anything like that on vermouth. Um, I just didn't know if it was important. And, I, refrigerate, know, I, just, I just refrigerate my vermouth, but I would say this. Vermouth, once you open it, it has a shelf life. What's, what kind of time frame could I expect? Two to three weeks. Oh, that's it. Okay. People that keep it longer or short if it's at home, for me, I can't. This is a quinquina, so this is Ooh, this what we're talking nice. about. This, this is Lake Cat Forest. Um, this is really beautiful products, and you have like oh. beautiful things in here. And like what you're tasting is like steeped like chinona bark, and chinona bark is what makes um, you know tonics and bitters Water. and stuff. What is this again? Chinona bark. It's a steeped chinona bark. So when he was talking about herbed wines, these are these are things that are steeped or are flavored, and they add a little bit of brandy to bring them up. Oh, quinine. Quinine. Gotcha. And um, uh, Dubonnet is also uh, has some quinine in it. Nice. So. It's really delicious. It's but do, you under, do you understand? Like, the, yeah, yeah. yeah it's no, I mean, when were. you guys set this up like side by side, this makes. A, I mean, obviously, it, it, the flavor profi profiles are so different. But you have a hundred percent this one, Pedro Menes, and then you have something completely different that's happening from um, Italy. So, like, you don't have like. You're in different time places. You're in different time periods. You're in different uh, uh, terroir, not time places. I'm in a different fucking time. <laughs> well, I put you in the time warp <laughs> right off the beginning, so just blame it on me. <laughs> from Corsica. Wait, 
from Corsica. From Corsica. Corsica. Yeah. Sorry. Which is part of France. Gotcha. So, and then you've got... Um, with, the, with the Italian influence. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because Sardinia... Yeah. yeah, yeah that, 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 imagine that, that Europe oh, having, like, no, crossovers. No, 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 no. You, you should like, understand. Sardinia and Corsica and all that stuff yeah. is very big melting pot well, of influence. Yeah. And that's why... And spelling. That's why you had vermouths coming out of both France and Italy, because back in those days, if, if the original vermouth was invented in, in Torino in 1786 by Arpano, Car, excuse me, Antonio Carpano Benedetto, there was such cross-pollinization just across if. the border. Well, that's, if, if you believe it. Cinzano, they yeah. say they invented gotcha. it. But um, let's just say it was, it was the late uh, 18th century. But they were in the same kingdom, I think the kingdom of Saxony, as, as the city of Marseille. It wasn't yeah. yet Italy here and France yeah. there. You know, you didn't have the unification of Italy until, what, 1870? Yeah. So, these were there. There was a lot of free trade. But even the now, two even like when you just even like anything before, after that, I mean, within Europe, the, the borders. If you if you're on the border, even in sure. the United States, you're on the border of any two countries. There's so much bleed over, and of then the, the the time frame, like exactly to your point, that at one point it was all the it was one country, right. and those that's when those things right. happen. So you had when, the drier style of vermouth coming out of Marseille and Chambéry, and the sweeter style coming out. So if you look at a an Does it have to do with the region, book. like wine? Uh, yeah. The, the wines they were using as the bases, yeah. yes. You know, they chose to add the herbs they, the, in the you know, different herb profiles, and the, I guess they were were they adding caramel yeah. originally? Yeah, in, yeah in sugar, the sugar, yeah. tar is whatever they called it. Yeah, dracons of tar. So, but it, it's all sort of the you know the the the, the raw ingredients of the aperitif and the the cocktail culture, the well, the aperitif culture. Um, of, of France and Italy to have these lower alcohol drinks. Now we're all like rediscovering the, the Aperol spritz and things like that, but it's been around forever. You know, the, this lighter alcohol drinks that you can enjoy, uh, you know, multiple um, drinks because over a longer period of time because they're, they're but they have so much flavor. Uh, it's not like you're losing anything. You're, you're not, you don't have the alcohol, but you, you have so much more flavor from all the, um, herbs and the botanicals and what have you and, and the raw materials so it's awesome so Phil tell us a little bit more about your books or what's different between each book is there like is there a, when you when you approach a book I'm always fascinated by writers as you know an art director in advertising well, I always wrote I always work with writers which you know is the bane of my existence but I mean you guys still do interest you know I can't help but like be a moth to the flame <laughs> I, I think if you look at two of my three books, you see a Hemingway influence. But I tried very hard with this one to not make it Hemingway Cocktail Ask. Companion 2.0. This is, he happened to be there in Paris, but there, even if he'd never been there, there's there just so much material. So many memoirs have been written about Paris in the 1920s. Having, the, um, having access to contemporaneous uh, cocktail books from the era, um, Again, just to rattle off all the names of the various people. So this is sort of a, a bartender's guide or a cocktail lover's guide to the people and the places that, that made up, you know, Paris in the 1920s, from the artists to the musicians to the to the writers to the poets to the hangers-on to the <laughs> publishers uh, to the newspaper columnists. I think that might be one of those. It was such an amazing, you know, not just Hemingway and Fitzgerald, the, the people that you expect yeah. to see in Midnight in Paris. But so many other people, Harry and Chris Crosby, and James Joyce, and and uh, Robert McAlman, and a lot of people you maybe you haven't heard of, or Juna Barnes, or 
um, all the great jazz musicians who were coming to, to Paris, Josephine Baker, wow. notably, Dooley Wilson, Sidney Bechet, people who didn't want to just play in front of their own crowd in Harlem. They wanted yeah. to play in front of a mix of people in Paris. And well, Paris there was, I mean, we, we can't gloss over what was happening within the United States and oh, why, yeah. these, why, why, these, why well, these musicians were going into other countries. Right, so you had segregation, had you had rights. prohibition. Yeah. Um, you know, all these influences that were driving a lot of people out of the country. Yeah. And I think you're saying it a little bit these days. I don't know how many times I've thought about moving back to New Zealand, but yeah. um, <laughs> I digress. No, anyway, we're, no. We're looking at property in the island. <laughs> it's, it was, uh, Malcolm Cowley wrote, um, it's the idea of exile, salvation by exile. They do things better in Europe, let's go there. Mm. And the idea of, oh, and my favorite quote was Gertrude Stein. She said, it's not what, France gave you, it's what she did not take away. Um, so you, you just had this freedom of, of um, expression, freedom of lifestyle. Um, okay, a lot of bohemians are going to dress the way they're going to dress, but, but ordinary people could live the life they wanted to without feeling, you know, stifled by middle class pressures and things like that. So, um, and, and you had gender equality there, people like Gertrude Stein and, and Natalie Clifford Barney had their amazing literary salons. You had Adrien Monnier and, and Sylvia Beach, who were in the publishing world. You know, Sylvia Beach published Ulysses when nobody else would touch it. Wow. Yeah. So you, you had these empowered women, um, you know, African Americans who who could be just normal people and yeah. have a white girlfriend, or you know, yeah. it, it was not. You, you know, um, Which would have been unheard of, and like definitely. Yeah, Sherwood Anderson. Wasn't Josephine Baker married to a white man? She was a French yeah, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, that was. Sherwood Anderson said it would to see a mixed race couple having dinner in a restaurant in America would cause a riot. Yeah. And yeah, it it, it was just well, a that much happened more liberating. Nineteen. Oh sure, here in DC we had segregated bathrooms I in mean, the fifties. But yeah, I mean I'm from St. Louis. I mean I, I and I'm forty six, and we, they didn't desegregate the public schools until I was in second grade. That's wow. sad. Yeah. Very sad. Very sad. But a, a very true statement, though. A very true statement. So in your books, um, would our listeners find recipes too? Then yes, it's it, the book is set up alphabetically. From absinthe to the whiskey sour, I, oh, I, I, I couldn't, find, couldn't find a zombie in Paris during those days, but uh, <laughs> almost A to Z. But uh, yeah, I mean, it starts with absinthe, then it goes to, let's say, the brandy and soda, and you know, alphabetically, um, one drink after another, where I try to weave into each drink. So it starts with, with a recipe, Ooh, but okay. I try to I try to weave into each drink everything I can tell you about that drink, who drank it, where anecdotes, excerpts from this novel, short story, this person's letter, this person's memoir, diary. Well, that's a lot of research. You should see, unfortunately, the save space in the book, I, didn't, I don't have my end notes in the book. If you could see the bibliography, it would blow you away. I, I must have drawn upon 50 different sources, probably more. Wow. Uh, so the end notes are located online. Um, because I don't, I don't believe in saying, so and so did such and such, yeah. and not, leaving, not, not having it credited. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I try to attribute everything I, 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 I source, but um, yeah. So this is thoroughly researched. I and I know I miss some stuff. I mean, because there there are so many people they are writing memoirs and newspaper stories and magazine articles and what have you. You, you couldn't touch everything, but I tried to get to the most important 
stories. You know, the story of, of Lindbergh landing, you know, flying from New York to Paris in, in May of 1927. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the story of the, the grand opening of, of um, uh, La Coupole, no, the, yeah, La Coupole, Cafe La Coupole in um, 1927, where 1,200 bottles of mum champagne were served. Wow. You know, just all these little snippets that you weave them all together in, in, within the context of, of um, you know, a, a, a collection of drink recipes, and it's, it's pretty compelling, I think. It, it was a lot of fun to write, and a lot of it just wrote itself. So. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, speaking of important and influential, and we have, you have three drinks in front of you. I think you need <laughs> one more. Um, Again, so Phil, my turn is really, more. really hard. So, <laughs> Phil inspires me, and we did, um, so, uh, it was Tartaria season when Phil's book first came out here. We took um, absinthe, and we and we put some tart cherries that we had already fermented a little bit in cardamom. Tart cherries? Tart, tart cherries. Okay. Um, I didn't understand that in French, but that doesn't work. <laughs> I think it's cherries. And anyway, uh, we soaked them in there, and they basically have been steeping, and in, uh, you could see them. They've actually taken that, they're black generally, the tart cherries, and now they've turned um, a maroon color. Yeah, beautiful okay. maroon. Yep. So they've been what we did was we took gin, uh, a little bit of the um, Creole, um, rum Creole, so we know that it's an orange flavor. And then we took some of the absinthe that was in the cherries, and we put that all in there with a little bit of lemon juice. And now we're gonna shake it up. We're gonna serve it up in a coupe glass. It's been chilled. And in true Gina ways, I can't possibly just let it go. <laughs> I have to put just a little bit of champagne on top. So you're gonna double strain that? I'm only double straining because I don't want the ice shards because I'm adding champagne. Gotcha. Had I not been adding champagne, I would allow it to have um, a little more room because it's, it, it's it's really nice just the way it is. If we're gonna add like, literally a touch of bubbly, just to play on a little bit of the effervescence. And when I say a touch, I mean like a little. A tiny little splash. So that is, um, so you're adding the bubbles just for mouthfeel or? Um, just to open it up. So gotcha. um, I just like, I really just love. How pretty. I love absinthe and champagne. I mean, it's one of my favorite things and it's never going to change, but I needed a little touch with it. Well, I mean, so, who's going to complain so what do you about call this life in the afternoon? <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe you just need nice. it. Could be. It's Hemingway, of course. Oh, that's six years that's so delicious. delicious. Like, wow, that's really good. Wow, that absinthe finish is like slow, but it's. But it doesn't dominate it. No, it's, it's beautiful. Popcorn. It kind of dances there. It waits, yeah. though. Wow, that's delicious. Yeah. I love you. So this could be like these could be really dangerous though. Like I could have lived in Paris in 1920. I feel like I would have been I would have fit in like a glove there. Absolutely. That's funny how we all have our different times that we would be like oh I could have done that time frame. I would have loved it. I would have loved everything about it. I loved the randomness. I would have loved the chaos of it. I love the CD underground sex of it. I would have loved the creativity <laughs> of it. I would have loved it all because legitimately it was what we still live on. We oh, still yeah. live on that time period. We still are inspired by that time period. You can't walk into a museum where data or mobiles or something isn't in your face. Like you, you, you don't even realize 
that like Salvador Dali made those things in the 20s. This wasn't Technicolor. This wasn't like something that you had. His well, his color inspired Wizard of Oz. If I'm I'm pretty sure I'm right yeah. about that. And I think even though you you see some variations earlier on, what we think of as the martini glass, you know that. Yeah. Uh, it, it debuted in 1927 at the Paris International Exposition. Um, so yeah, the influence is, is just, it lives on and on, it's, it's as she says. It's, so. Yeah, it's always amazing to see, I mean like being an art major um, and how things are influenced. It's, it's interesting to hear like where food and beverage and the cocktails and what Dolly was doing and what Picasso was doing and where they were. And it, it's just always really interesting they to hear. They were friends. Like, yeah. yeah. They talked to each of, other. Think about two of the greatest novels of the century, 1925 Gatsby, 1926 The Sun Also Rises. And they met in a bar in Paris in, in May of 1925, Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Yeah. And just to think that the two of them went on a road trip together. That's pretty cool. You know, two of the most iconic novels of the century and they're just a couple of drinking buddies. Yeah. You know, so. so I'm gonna do a little uh, name dropping, I don't know, maybe. Um, so my father was in World War II. He was much older. Um, I, my father had five wives. My mom was number three. Um, I was the last of his children. So he had a, a, a life well, well before my mother. And uh, he was in World War II, got out of the uh, Army Air Corps as a tail gunner mm -hmm. and went to art school in Rome. And my father was a pretty conservative artist. Like to see the work that he ended up doing as an like as an artist was pretty like traditional in the Norman way. Rockwell. Yeah, mm, no, but yeah. <laughs> oh no, but it was just very true. Like if I saw when I looked at my father's artwork, especially as an art school, it wasn't art. It wasn't abstract. It was very uh, definitely more realism. Um, and then there was this part of. I got into, as my father's getting older, he is now gone, but he started sharing some other things when he was in college. My father took an art, so he went to art school in Rome. After he got out of the war, he stayed in Italy for 12 years. He took an art class, he went to art school in Rome, and he had a guest speaker, a guest teacher for two weeks. It was Pablo Picasso. Wow. So it would have been in the 40s, like late, probably early, late 40s. Um, while he was when he was there because when my father got out of the war probably in, I think in 1944 so it would have been some time because he lived there 12 years it would have been within that window of time probably well before 1950 um, but yeah because he has this piece that is um, and I was like God, oh, this is so unlike any of my father's work because it was such a young artist then too um, before, do you own a Picasso? I'd I, like you to sell it I own my father's piece inspired by Picasso in, in, uh. that Picasso was his teacher for two yeah, weeks that's amazing it's Incredible. pretty amazing, yeah. Because I mean, like, it's so different. It's fish. It's in clay, and it's unlike anything my father and I had to ask. I, finally, I'm like, where did this come from? Like, what I do have is all my Such father's an aberration. Yeah, and I have all my father's new drawings, which are super like like abstract as well. But That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. So, yeah, five wives and a Picasso. <laughs> So the title, I have to say, is amazing to me. Yes. Well, the original, thank you. The original one was a mixable feast, which mm. you would like to, the mixers. I would have loved that. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I think we decided mixable didn't convey the idea of the book as well as drinkable. Oh, drink, it's about drinks. You know, mixable, what is that? A chemistry set? You know, what is that? So, um, yeah, I, I, I got lucky with the title. People always say to me, 
How did you come up with To Have and Have Another? It's like, I, I just, you just run through the titles and you try to play something off of something else. And, and this one just was so obvious, you know, because uh, Hemingway said, if you're lucky enough to live in Paris as a young man, it stays with you for Paris as a, you, you take it with you wherever you go, it stays with you for Paris as a, as a movable feast. So yeah. it was just so easy to call it a drinkable feast. And, it's the story of your life, isn't it? Isn't that supposed to be everybody's story? Well, it, for me, it was New Orleans. New Orleans stayed with me, and you know, I, I learned to, to cook down there. I learned, you know, about about folklore and, and eating and drinking and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, and I friendship. I, ex yeah, exactly. But I could I could appreciate what Hemingway was saying, talking about Paris, because New Orleans was my own my, my own Paris. Yeah, but, to say uh, Nola was your Paris. Huh? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so. Cool. But um, it, I've had a lot of fun with the book. It came out last week, a week ago today, and uh, it's going to be written up in the Washington Post tomorrow. My friend Carrie Allen, in the print edition, wow. and um, I'm told it's going to be in the uh, New York Times Book Review and also the Wall Street Journal. But I should, I should maybe you should delete that because maybe it won't happen now that I've jinxed it. <laughs> well, it, it, depending on the time, drop the episode. We'll just you know, all you have to do is Google it, and we'll definitely have all those cool. links at the website. Make sure. Speaking of links. If you want any uh, how-tos or recipes. Where or to buy. Where to buy, all of those things. Um, you just head over to designateddrinker.show. Gina, what is that? It's designateddrinker.show. And she'll have all the recipe tips and how-tos, and we'll make sure we have the links for you to uh, get to fill well, I want to make books. this uh, uh, life in the afternoon, if, if that's the word. I'm really going to call it that, so. Yeah. I just, think you sealed that deal. We just have a, we have a new drink, and See, I love it. They, Somebody put out a, uh, a couple. A couple of editors put out a, a, a celebrity literary cocktail book in the mid '30s called "Breath in the Afternoon" or "How Red the Nose," uh, or "So Red the Nose." And Hemingway had a drink in there called the um, "Death in the Afternoon," which was champagne and, and absinthe. Oh. So it was very obvious. It's a very to me. famous drink. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it, and um, at, he said, "Drink four, three or four of these slowly." And then the, the editor says something like, after, after six of these, the sun also rises. So, <laughs> yeah. so Gina, I think that we need to take the show to Paris with Phil. Please. Thank you. I was waiting for that. <laughs> Obviously. We bring Elise there. <laughs> so, Gina, mm. got anything else? Mm. I mean, I always. But... So, that brings us to one thing. That's closing time. Or the sun also says. Where the sun also sets. I, really I thought she was going to say je ne sais quoi. I don't know what. <laughs> you may end it that way, but I'm just going to do a last call. <laughs> I'm going to end the show in that. I'm going to do closing time. Phil, you don't have to go home. But maybe you should just go to Paris. <laughs> well said, well we just have said. to get the hell out of here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs>